Hi, welcome to Faith of Our Fathers, episode seven. I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. Charles, last week we were talking about adoptionism, that heresy, and now this week we're going to sit, switch to the opposite of adoptionism, which would be docetism. Now tell us why those are opposites. Right, yeah. Uh, one thing to remember that in the early church, you know, the church is facing a whole host of problems, both internally and externally. Externally, we, we have the threat of persecution initially coming from the Jews, but by um, the second half of the first century, the Roman Empire starts pushing back, especially, uh, well, starts pushing back against Christianity, um, especially as it starts to be seen as its own distinct entity separate from Judaism. Mm. Um, but, of course, external threats are not the only problem. There's the internal threat as well as uh, false teachings are making its way in, uh, into the church. Um, and there's a variety of false teachers. Not just, there's not just one group of false teachers. There's a mm. whole... No, a, a variety of groups. Um, we, we've looked at one, that being adoptionism, which denied um, the divinity of Christ, mm. claimed that Jesus was human, and some would say that he became divine by virtue of his law-keeping and his baptism. Mm. And we looked uh, last time how that was heretical, um, both at the doxological level and also at the practical um, and pastoral level. Docetism is, is almost its exact opposite. Yeah. You know, it's the other end of the spectrum of Pharisees. If adoptionism denies the essential divinity of Christ, uh, docetism denies uh, Christ's humanity uh, at the incarnation. Uh, what the docetists claimed was that uh, Jesus uh, basically performed a giant magic trick and that he uh, he only appeared, um, the Greek word for appear meaning docane to see, and that's where we get the term docetism from, claiming uh, that he only appeared uh, to be human. Kind of the historical background and context for this is, if, if you recall, I guess from our second or third episode, we were talking about the the onset of the Jewish war. It's kind of the right. the, the thing that begins the, uh, the where people begin to see Christianity and Judaism as being separate from one another, as being two distinct kind of uh, uh, religions from a kind of a sociological perspective at right. least. Uh, it, when, when the Jewish war breaks out, we have extra-biblical evidence that key leaders in the church end up packing up their bags and seeking refuge elsewhere. Among those being the Apostle John, Philip the Evangelist, his two daughters, uh, they end up fleeing towards uh, the city of Ephesus, which is in uh, western, what's modern-day Turkey, uh, close to the the coast uh, of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Uh, John serves uh, in and around Ephesus for the most uh, of the rest of his life. Uh, around the 80s or 90s sometime, John ends up having to write a letter, most likely a circular letter, addressed to several churches in Asia Minor, um, probably somehow connected with Ephesus, probably the church at Smyrna. Um, you know, the Book of Revelation identifies at least seven churches kind of in and around this area, probably the same sets of churches that um, uh, that he addressed in Revelation. It, it, it seems it's possible that these, these uh, letters probably circled uh, circulated there, but John's uh, addressing a particular issue that arose in this region. Uh, a group of people from within the church began adopting pagan presuppositions. Not really sure if they um, uh, had joined the church already with these presuppositions or if they just kind of changed their minds about certain things, but either which way, um, these uh, certain pagan notions that they had concerning the, the nature of uh, who God is impacted 
how they understood the nature of salvation. Uh, and John ends up having to write explicitly against these people in, uh, in his first epistle. Uh, and, you know, if you look at 1 John 4, 1 through 3, he gets to the point in, in uh, saying, you know, it's by this that you know the Spirit of God. He has to give a, a litmus test for assurance for these Christians who want to adhere to the apostolic witness, you know, the Orthodox faith. Uh, and he says, here's, here's, here's how you could tell true doctrine from false doctrine, basically. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Mm. So he's not saying that Docetism is just another viable alternative of Christianity. Right, another way. Right. He calls them false prophets, calls them the Antichrist doesn't get much clearer than that you know it's <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of you know everybody thinks of first john as being kind of a nice a nice letter non-polemical mm. it's very polemical it's just kind of like a velvet covered brick um because he uses very very strong antithetical language that's the distinction between light and darkness you know mm. truth and falsehood uh, the spirit of christ and the spirit of antichrist and mm. he says that those who, who deny the fact that that the second person of the Godhead has taken on human flesh truly to himself, those who deny the fact that Jesus take on flesh, they, that those people are not of God. Yeah. Um, if you kind of fast forward about 20 years later, um, one of John, well, uh, uh, an individual who grew up under John's teaching uh, became the Bishop of Antioch, this guy by the name of Ignatius, who we'll talk about in the next episode. Mm. Uh, Ignatius, around the year 117, is about to be martyred. And on his way to Rome to be martyred, he ends up writing a series of letters, several of the letters addressed to these same churches in, in Western Turkey or Western Asia Minor, including writes a letter to the Church of the Ephesians, um, the, to the Trallians, uh, to the Smyrnians, um, and then uh, a letter to his friend uh, Polycarp, who also had grown up under the Apostle John's uh, teaching. What's really interesting is that Ignatius is attacking either the same or a similar problem that's still besetting these churches in this region. Wow. Um, it's Wait, kind of funny. He, uh, yeah. So, so it's even, even though John as the apostle speaks authoritatively, yeah, it's like the spirit of the antichrist is so strong that Ignatius still has to keep fighting. Right. The same. And it's not a, you know, uh, sort of a, a one-off, you know, random nitpicking point, but it's a theological error, right? That has to be rooted out, and yeah. it, and it keeps coming in. It's not like they're just, you know, they're just trying to go on a witch hunt, right? But this is doctrine is important. Doctrine is absolutely fact, important. Doctor, you know, orthodox and orthopraxy go hand in hand. If if you read Ignatius's letters, uh, and as we'll talk about in a couple minutes, um, the two and two, uh, the two go go hand in hand. Um, what I think is really interesting, among other things, is that Ignatius and some of these other authors, when they're writing, they actually make a, a distinction between their own letters and the letters of the apostles. Mm. So they're rooting their teaching in something that they have received. Yeah. Um, and, and that of, of, of you know, Scripture, right. what we call now the New Testament. Mm. Um, it's really interesting. I Ignatius is uh, a really great polemicist as well. Hmm. Um, I think that the best Christian writers are really good at polemics. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think it's something to keep in mind when you uh, read, you know, really great blog posts or essays, you know, I think <laughs> of Dr. Truman, really great polemicist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but in uh, 
Ignatius uh, of Antioch, his letter to the uh, to the Trallians, which sounds like an alien race from Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> Trallians! Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, Ignatius at one point um, is, is using a play on words. Remember the term docane means to seem or to appear. Right. And uh, Ignatius says here, uh, when he's writing to the Trallians, he goes, uh, but uh, if, as some that are without God, that is, the unbelieving say that he only seemed to suffer, and then in parentheses he goes, they themselves only seeming to exist, he says, then why am I in bonds? Mm-hmm. You know, what he's going at, you know, he's, you know again, he's, he's using this play on word against these docetists, but one of the things that, that really drives Ignatius up the wall is, if Jesus only appeared to suffer, then why am I about to be martyred? If suffering isn't a present reality, if, if there isn't a certain legitimacy to suffering, and I don't mean legitimacy in the sense of earning one's salvation, but the fact that suffering and Christianity go hand in hand. You read Paul's letters, he goes, you know, it, you know, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer per- persecution. That Paul says that in his letter to Timothy. Now, why is it that denying the humanity of Christ is co-equals with denying uh, the suffering that Christians right. uh, I, well, should it, partake it, in. It kind of goes hand in hand with the, the, the means by which God saves his people. Okay. Um, there is going to be a particular phrase or dictum that uh, um, certain church fathers will use in the 4th century that kind of sheds light on, on the trajectory that, that orthodoxy will, will – and the, the point that it's trying to make in talking about this, that that which Christ did not assume, he could not redeem. Right. And so that – I mean this is something coming straight from the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament, that Christ had to be make, made like man in every way sin accepted. Mm. Um to, to deliver us, you know, the redemption of our bodies is not just a redemption of our wills or of our minds or of our emotions. It's the redemption of the whole person. Mm. Um, and so to deny the, the, the fact of the incarnation, if Jesus did not take on human flesh, then humanity is not saved. Ignatius will actually say at the end of one of his letters, uh, he points to the fact of the resurrection of the dead right. um, as, uh, you know, being uh, the source of our hope. Mm. In Christ, that because Christ has died and has been raised, so too we who will die will also be raised. Um, and so I, I think it points to a number of things. One, of course, I think it, it um, docetism fails to address the, the doxological issue. Right. Um, it fails to honor Christ and the work that he has accomplished for us in his state of humiliation. Yeah. You know, you read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. There's these early kind of creedal or quasi-creedal statements that we see embedded in the New Testament that the main thrust is on the incarnation, mm. that's central to the Christian faith. I mean, you look at the Apostles' Creed, you look at the Nicene Creed um, that many churches uh, recite um, every week to this day. Um, this, the, the, framing, the framework of these creeds is the fact that the second person of the Godhead became man. He suffered, died, and was buried on the third day. He rose again. Um, and this takes away from the, the, the value of the Christian on a number of, of levels. One, um, what the, the Docetists had done was they, like I said, they had adopted certain pa- pagan presuppositions. They said that God 
who is spiritual and superior to everything would not bother to condescend to take on uh, material form. Mm. Uh, the the Docetists and, and a later group of people we'll talk about in a couple episodes known as uh, uh, Gnostics will say will see the problem of evil being rooted not in the nature of sin but in the nature of the material world. Oh, and so what it, it seems clear that what John the Apostle John even writes against in First John against these people is that they had rooted salvation not in the deliverance from sin but in the deliverance from the material world. So liberation oh. is seen as, you know, the, a liberation from the body, uh, right. you know, kind of like that arcade fire song, my body is a cage. That's classic. <laughs> yeah. That's classic Gnostic thought. That's, mm. that's, you know, um, that's not how the Bible construes the way in which man is comprised. Mm. You know, man's soul is not just, you know, a bird in a cage trapped in his body. Mm. That that is a pagan presupposition, and uh, Docetus took this idea that the material world is somehow inferior and said, "Well, Jesus uh, could not have actually been a true human because God wouldn't have bothered to uh, enmesh Himself in, in the filth of this material world. Therefore, Jesus performed a giant optical illusion or a magic trick for mm. our for our we- on behalf of our weakness mm. is what they would claim, and and said that they would." Well, they said that Jesus uh, did this, and so now the, the way to salvation is by gaining some type of secret esoteric knowledge, mm-hmm. which you can eventually achieve liberation. We'll talk about kind of the ins and outs of, uh, of that particular facet when we talk about Gnosticism in a couple episodes. But um, this has traumatic import because if you affirm a Docetic Christ, then you deny the validity of suffering because you deny this good material existence. Mm. You know, Genesis 1 specifically says that, you know, on every day of creation, God creates it. And at the end of the day, he says, what? It's good. It's good. It makes man, what? It is very good. Right. You know, after he forms man of the dust of the ground, he says, behold, it is very good. Docetism denies, um, denies that. And with it denies, uh, the, the, the validity of suffering that's come as a result of the fall. Um, it it has a, a certain, practical impact on how we relate to one another it, it's really interesting uh, again w- w- in this you know series we're, we're wanting to make the the argument that these guys who are writing are not just philosophers kind of yeah. speculating about metaphysical things that have no bearing upon this present reality I think about theological possibilities that are you know itching ears sort of right thing. that's not that's only a half truth it's it right. also has right this guy's a pastor yeah you know, he's a bishop. He's about to be martyred for the faith. Um, and he's writing letters to churches to encourage them to continue in the faith that doctrine and life go hand in hand. Um, and one of the things that Ignatius is concerned about in his criticism of the Docetists, if you read his letters and you can you find them online, you can find translations online and, and read them when you want. Um, but his big critique of the Docetists is how it plays itself out practically. He says they don't care because they don't care about this material world. They don't care about suffering or in affliction. What is it that the Dostas don't do? Uh, Ignatius says they don't care for the poor. They don't mm. care about the widows. They don't visit the sick or those in prison. Mm. So we're, we're starting to see how false teachings will have will come to bear on how we relate to one another. And again, that's one of the, the things that we're, we're wanting you to think about the nature of heresies of having a twofold problem. The doxological problem that it fails to attribute salvation to God and God alone in some way, shape, or form. 
you know, as, as the Bible says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right. Um, and so th- there's the doxological issue we have to deal with, but there's also, you know, that, that's the that's the vertical issue. Now we also have the horizontal issue. And we're starting to see that a failure to understand truth as God has revealed it, um, failure to adhere to it will lead to uh, a failure to uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and so heresies fail to fulfill the two great commandments, to love God with all your whole soul, mind, and strength, and, and a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, ultimately, docetism presents an escapist view of salvation. Um, there's a uh, an Anglican bishop, I think he used to be the bishop of South Carolina by the name of C. Fitzsimons Allison. He actually defined uh, docetism as the human hope that religion will provide escape from suffering. Mm. Uh, and he, he claims that um, any form of religion or escapist activity that tries to downplay suffering is essentially of the same um, – the same uh, – the, the, from the same cloth. Yeah, the same cloth mm. as docetism, whether it be B- Buddhism that denies mm. – it wants to deny suffering, saying suffering is nonexistent. Yeah. You know, it's an illusion. That that's the same just thing. Seems like and what you're do they suffering. do? Yeah, they deny the material existence. They do the exact same thing. Uh, see if it's Simon's Allison goes far uh, so far as to say that um, we see this even in uh, with non-religious people with turning to you know what he says um, sex and drugs, mm. you know, um, as a means to 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 fight the the pain the le- you know legitimate pain uh, uh, that we see in the, in this present evil age. Um, mm. Just that, that that sense of it only seems that this is bad, but you have to kind of trick yourself into a transcendent, greater reality. Right. That's so. so uh, this who you quoted earlier, this uh, bishop is saying that that's all cut from the same cloth, which yeah. is this this heresy. Yeah. And it will ultimately uh, begin to be cruel to. Your flock, yeah, and that's he wrote this that book, the cruelty of heresy. He's the yeah. one who kind of really emphasizes that the nature that heresies are cruel, mm. you know. And the fact is, you read First Corinthians one, Paul is adamant: the symbol of Christianity is not an escape from suffering. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's the cross. He says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those of us who are being saved. It's the it's the power of God. Mm. You know, it's, uh, you know, you read Philippians three and we'll probably talk about this more in a couple minutes. And it's that Paul says he, um, he, he earnestly desires to know God in Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. And I think one of the things that to keep in mind is that the Holy spirit has been given to us as a comforter. Mm. And so the idea is if we downplay suffering, the reality of suffering, if suffering is only an illusion, then our comfort is also only an illusion. Oh, yeah. Um, because if suffering is not real, then there is no true source of comfort that we're given. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a comforter, mm. promised by Christ himself, because Christianity, unlike other religions, affirms the reality of suffering. It's not saying, oh, suffering's real bad, so you just need to kind of think harder, and you know, if you just think hard enough, suffering will go away. Now, Christianity says, no, suffering is real and it's the result of sin, it's the result of the fall. But because of Christ, you know, we, we now see the, the breaking point of God's kingdom where death itself is going to be crushed under the mighty hand of God at the mm. last day. And we see the beginnings of this at the crucifixion and, and the resurrection of Jesus and, and his ascension as the, um, 
as the Messiah over, over the world. That's good. I, uh, I think some other things that we could possibly talk about for just a, a brief second would be, uh, some stuff that we see ascetic tendencies today, mm-hmm. uh, which as we've said earlier, sort of, uh, anything that kind of downplays the suffering mode, uh, the calibration of the, the Christian's life, which is the mode of suffering. Mm-hmm. If anything's sort of nagging against that and, and uh, putting that uh, to the side or, or, or making that minimum or even preaching, you got to get over that. We got to keep working hard to get past the age of suffering into more of like a utopian Christianity. Right. Um, that uh, can be a, a form, a sort of hidden form of ascetic tendencies. Yeah, yeah. We want to make, we want to try to root out suffering by our own self will or self thought. The reality is, suffering is only going to be finally obliterated at the last day. Mm. It's it, where we'll again, where we'll properly ascribe salvation to God and God alone in the fullest sense of the word. Yeah. What other forms uh, would you say today? Any other forms that you can maybe? Yeah. Well, that I, would be like. Yeah. I, sounds well, ascetic. Yeah, well, you know, the big concern of Ignatius of Antioch in the second century is um, suffering with respect to persecution. Hmm. Uh, But I think it goes that the New Testament, I I think, expands it to think about the nature of suffering as being more than just external persecution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look at Hebrews 2, uh, 14 through 18, for instance. You know, you can read it when you get home, but... Let me just read real quick. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that is to say, flesh and blood, that through death, through the reality of suffering himself, Mm. right, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, Mm. and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he, again referring to Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here it is. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hmm. So I would say that here, Christ himself, it talks about Christ's suffering, not because of his own sin, it's because it's because of the fact that he doesn't sin. He takes on human flesh and refuses to sin. And so temptation itself, according to this passage, is seen as a form of suffering. If you read Romans 8, the fact that we're living under, you know, the fruit of the fall, mm. you know, uh, living in the course of this world, as he says, that, you know, Paul says that, you know, all creation groans for, you know, the redemption mm. of the age to come. Right. Um, and, you know, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Yeah. And so, as you know, as we're living under the effects of the fall, I think the New Testament is clear that that itself is a mode of suffering that all Christians live under. Mm. So it's not just oh, persecu- you know, suffering persecution. That is something for people in Muslim Christians in Muslim countries. Right. No, I think the New Testament is clear that that is a valid form of suffering. This external persecution, but. The fact that we have to battle temptation and besetting sins every day, and everybody has different types of besetting sins, they have to struggle against that. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and That's fascinating because yeah. it has even not only just the ramifications of Christology, but it also bleeds into our eschatology, right? which is 
what is the mode of the church until Christ returns? Is it, is it the mode of getting over our sufferings to build a sort of utopia or the extreme of escapism, you know, um, and, uh, uh, you know, extreme forms of escapism. And so it's, it's neither one, right? It's neither, Oh, it's only if we're being killed, uh, you know, on the streets, uh, then we know our, you know, eschatology is sort of rising, or it's it's only if we we build, you know, New Jerusalem here in America, and so both forms uh, have a false view of suffering. Right. At the end of the day. Yeah, and and that that has tremendous ramifications in how we think about the nature of sanctification. Mm. Um, if you read B.B. Warfield in his Faith and Life book, it's a series of sermons that he give on Sunday afternoons to his seminary students. Uh, there's one called Entire Sanctification, where it's an overview of, I think it's First or Second Thessalonians, where um, he uses the language of battle and war. And the New Testament as a whole uses that language, the battle of the struggle and the fight against besetting sin. That's a form of suffering. Mm. But it's something that Christians are called to do every day. And so we cannot use the language of sanctification as that of just mere gratitude mm. for, for what Christ has done. That is true. Yeah. But the, the Bible gives us a call to arms because, you know, you know, the, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual and powerful for the pulling down of strongholds. You know, Ephesians six, you know, I'm, there's yeah. a whole host of, uh, of passages that are <laughs> kind of running through my mind right now. It's just uh, the, the nature of the Christian life is a violent struggle against sin. Mm. Um, and docetism will downplay that. You see that, I think, in the prosperity gospel. Mm. The idea that Christ is here to make you happy and, and healthy and wealthy. Mm. Um, and that, that's the complete opposite of 1 Corinthians one eighteen. that the message of the cross, you know, God's triumph over uh, evil and the forces of darkness comes in the second person, the Godhead, condescending and taking on human flesh in the form of a servant. And uh, and being crucified and and brutally mass you know brutally murdered um, for our sake and it, it's in that moment of weakness that that the victory of God is clearly seen uh, in clear opposition to the um, the vain philosophies of the world that would want to tri- attribute the power of God to something some other form. Mm. I mean that's something that that Luther really brings home in, at the Heidelberg Disputation in fifteen eighteen with his theology of the cross. Right. Yeah. Um, and Docetism undermines the complete nature of our salvation by saying that suffering is, is illusory. Mm. And against that, Christianity affirms that suffering is, is a reality, but it is a reality that we will see done away with as we, when, when, when our Lord returns mm. to finally crush, um, you know, the head of the serpent. And, <laughs> and Another helpful resource. Uh, he already has crushed that serpent, but you know, right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Already you know, not yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> boss, go read him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Another helpful resource on uh, suffering and tying all these these themes together is is Gaffin's uh, the usefulness of the cross. Um, it's available online, I think, for free. Yeah, you can you can find it on the beginningwithmoses.org website. Um, and I'll just quote the very last uh, uh, paragraph that he has, which is incredible. But he says, "Only in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings." Will the church avoid the extremes of quasi-theocratic utopianism on the one hand 
and a millennial escapism and narrowing of the gospel on the other. For this reason, too, that we stay free of these extremes with their inevitable tendency to various forms of ideological or even practical bondage. It has been given to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. Philippians one twenty nine. It's an awesome article. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Charles, what are we going to look at next week? Next week, next week, uh, we're going to look at the the apostolic fathers. Uh, uh, primarily, we're going to look at two chief figures, uh, people who grew up under the uh, teaching of the apostle John himself, who we have uh, letters that they had written to kind of look at the continuity of kind of um, the apostolic tradition and cool. uh, Ignatius of Antioch and, and who we've talked about earlier in this episode, and then Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp. Yeah. There's more than one carp. Yeah. And uh, many carps. Many carpy DMs. <laughs> that is probably the worst joke I've ever made in my entire life. Right. Please don't stop listening. <laughs> okay. So we're going to look at the Apostolic Fathers uh, next week. Uh, sounds fun. And um, anything else to add? Nope. Awesome. Well, this is Faith of Our Fathers. Once again, I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. Thanks for listening.